I'm Martine Halverson-Taylor. And I'm Curtis Schaefer. And this is Sacred and Profane, a show about religion in unexpected places. And today we are talking about the age-old but still surprising ways in which religion shapes politics and politics shape religion. We found some fascinating appearances of an ancient king in modern political life. We're talking about King Cyrus. You may remember that last year we did an episode on Cyrus and his edict, the Cyrus Cylinder, and how it echoes our own debates about immigration and national identity. And we absolutely recommend you go back and listen to that episode, by the way. But even if you haven't listened, you may be familiar with Cyrus. He founded one of Asia's first great empires after conquering much of the Middle East in the 6th century BCE. And he's enjoyed a long and rich afterlife in our cultural imagination, partly because of the role he plays in one of the most famous stories in the Hebrew Bible. Cyrus, after conquering the city of Babylon, issued an edict allowing a number of exiles in Babylon to return to their homelands. In the Bible, he's described as setting the Jews exiled to Babylon free to return to their homeland, Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes. I made the earth and created humankind upon it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I have aroused Cyrus in righteousness and I will make all his paths straight. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. And so maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that Cyrus wasn't just a power player in the ancient world. He's become a powerful symbol for political leaders in the modern world for a whole host of reasons. George Washington was called an American Cyrus by his supporters, both for his military victories and his outreach to American Jews. Not to be outdone, Napoleon proclaimed himself a modern Cyrus after invading the Middle East and promising that Jews would be free to return to the Holy Land. Today on the show, we'll look at two leaders who have become closely associated with Cyrus for very different reasons. President Donald Trump. America's going to have a challenge either way. With Trump, I believe we have a Cyrus to navigate through the storm. And the last Shah of Iran. Cyrus, the father of Iran, which this Shah rules today. You know, there's a lot of empty room there, a lot of space for imagination and for filling in one's own worldview. And that actually makes him, you know, the great candidate for building legitimacy around. That's historian Menachem Merhavi. He explores, among other things, how Cyrus is remembered in modern Iran. And that's where we'll start. Menachem says it's hard to find a clearer example of Cyrus being used as a powerful political symbol than 20th century Iran. Specifically during the rule of Mohammad Pahlavi, the last Shah. 
he more than hinted that he was a modern Cyrus. The comparison to Cyrus was part of the Shah's ongoing campaign to present himself as a legitimate ruler both inside and outside of Iran. His rule had been shaky for most of his reign. Then, in 1952, Iran's popular prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, effectively seized control of the government. The Shah returned to power only after a coup backed by the U.S. and U.K. For me, that I mean, the way I see it, when the Shah returned, he, he realized, you know, much more than sitting on the throne, he needs to actually legitimate his, his rule. All the more so since he returned with massive assistance from the West, and then he needed to, you know, to uh, stand out as an authentic Iranian king. Positioning himself as a modern-day Cyrus helped the Shah lay claim to thousands of years of Iranian history and culture. He could paint himself as a cosmopolitan, tolerant, and liberal ruler who respected his subjects. And, at the same time, he could also use Cyrus to lay claim to the most important political traditions of the West. Mesdames et messieurs, il m'est extrêmement agréable de vous souhaiter la bienvenue dans notre capitale. That's the voice of the Shah, speaking at the United Nations' very first conference on human rights. It took place in Tehran in 1968. It's a remarkable coincidence. We hardly need to be reminded that it was near here that the ancestor of this document, which recognizes human rights, was proclaimed across this very land some 2,500 years ago. This is our statement. This is, you know, we started it before the West ever spoke about human rights and freedom of speech and so on and so forth. They definitely build on that a lot. But that was just the beginning. When I spoke with Menachem, he said the grandest example of how the Shah worked to portray himself as a modern Cyrus came in 1971. 1971 was the year that the government launched an elaborate celebration to commemorate over 2,000 years of Iranian monarchy that began with King Cyrus. The highlight was a party in the Iranian desert. It was meant to show the world that Iran had arrived on the world stage with the Shah at its head. And it was absolutely decadent. Over 60 heads of state were shuttled out to a specially built luxury tent city near the ruins of Cyrus's ancient capital. Soldiers dressed in ancient Persian uniforms were on parade. Food and wine were flown in from one of the finest restaurants in Paris, including the main course, peacocks stuffed with foie gras. The festivities were broadcast across the world. Later, Orson Welles was hired to narrate a feature film of the event. Cyrus, king of kings, champion long before Magna Carta of human rights and liberties. Cyrus, the founder of Persian culture and the father of Iran, 
which this Shah rules today. Then the Shah dresses the tomb of uh, Cyrus the Great as part of this big extravaganza. The Shah began by addressing Cyrus, Kurosh and Farsi, one king to another. Kurosh, Shah-e-Bazard. Oh, Cyrus, great king, king of kings, Achaemenian king, king of the land of Iran, I, the Shah and Shah of Iran, offer these salutations from myself and from my nation. Uh, you know, I, king of, uh, king of Iran, you know, salute you, rest in peace because we are here to uh, keep on the good work or something like that. But the event came to underscore the difference between how Iranians remembered the actual Cyrus, the benevolent ruler of a proud and diverse Iranian empire, and how many saw the Shah as the leader of an oppressive police state propped up by foreign powers. And the sheer cost of the party, estimated to have run over $600 million, didn't help either. These costly celebrations of Cyrus became major political fodder for Ayatollah Khomeini, who would help depose the Shah and establish the Islamic Republic. It kind of backfired in the sense that Iranians didn't buy it as buying legitimacy to the Pahlavi state. However, they did not throw the baby with a, with a bathtub. That is to say, while the Shah is gone, Cyrus is still a popular figure among Iranians. And especially in the Iranian diaspora, Cyrus and his edict remain a source of pride, closely associated with human rights and religious freedom. In other words, the comparison failed, not because people didn't see good qualities in Cyrus, but because it was a top-down image created by the Shah himself. It was a bit like giving yourself your own grandiose nickname. It doesn't tend to stick when you name yourself. And that's one key difference in the comparison between Cyrus and President Trump. I want to tell you that the Jewish people have a long memory. So we remember the proclamation of the great king, Cyrus the Great, Persian king, 2,500 years ago. He proclaimed that the Jewish exiles in Babylon could come back and rebuild our temple in Jerusalem. And we remember how a few weeks ago, President Donald J. Trump Recognize Jerusalem That was Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at a press conference in 2018. Netanyahu is far from alone in making the Trump-Cyrus connection. U.S. evangelical Christians are divided about what to do with Donald Trump. The views range from standing with him, abandoning him, or believing he has a biblical mandate. I walked out of that office after meeting with him, and I knew God had chosen him for such a time as this. God was raising him up like Cyrus. It's not a normal election, and so we, we, we almost need a different kind of candidate. Trump has the Cyrus anointing. I think that 
in all things in evangelical Republican politics, it really is more about politics than it is about the religion. This is reporter Sarah Posner. My name is Sarah Posner. Uh, I've been covering the Christian right and Republican politics and the evangelical quest for the perfect presidential candidate, which they ultimately appear to find in, surprisingly, Donald Trump. So Trump's support among white evangelicals seems like such established fact now. Let's go back to when he first seemed to become their preferred candidate, which is when you begin to see these comparisons to Cyrus start to pop up. Why did Cyrus become this powerful frame for Trump's candidacy? Well, I think first a little context is in order uh, to understand what politicized evangelicals have been traditionally looking for in a presidential candidate since the Reagan era. Since that time, they have basically created a litmus test for Republican presidential candidates that they applied in primaries. Governor Bush, a philosopher thinker, and why? Uh, Christ, because he changed my heart. I think that the viewer would like to know more on how he has changed your heart. Well, if they don't know, it's going to be hard to explain. When you accept Christ as a savior, it changes your heart and changes your life. And that's what happened to me. This person has to have a relatable salvation story. They have to be a professing Christian. They have to be a good family man. And by that, I literally mean man. Um, And they had to check off all of these boxes, including not just being a Christian, but also promising to govern from a Christian worldview or from a biblical worldview. And Trump, he was so obviously unable to even provide the most cursory, basic answers to those questions that evangelicals wanted answered. I hear this is a major theme right here, but 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 3.17, that's the whole ballgame. Is that the one? Is that the one you like? I think that's the one you like, because I loved it. And it's so representative of what's taken place. So they had a bit of a problem in Trump in 2016, because obviously he was not checking off those boxes, yet the evangelical base was falling head over heels for him. So what you saw, particularly in the charismatic and Pentecostal subculture of American evangelicalism, was a number of different people claiming to have insight into biblical prophecy. Why'd you, why Trump, why'd you pick him? I began to see what a lot of Christians saw was that God was raising up this man who we didn't even necessarily like. Well, perhaps Trump wasn't a Christian, but perhaps he was instead a leader that God sent to America at this time to save America, much like Cyrus enabled the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. And so uh, then it kind of just continued to catch fire such that the Cyrus comparison just became very commonplace in 
evangelical discussions about Trump and has even been used by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to to say that uh, Trump is like a Cyrus to the Israeli people. So let's sort of talk about the substance of the comparison. In likening Trump to Cyrus, they're acknowledging that he is not of the tribe, right? So he's a he's a Gentile king. Right. And, the, and they're figuring him as a divine instrument. Yes. It's a way of accommodating for his uh, not looking like a Christian leader. Exactly. And, and so what else does it account for in him? How else does the comparison work? Well, oddly enough, the comparison works because he's the now the 45th president and Cyrus is discussed in the 45th chapter of Isaiah. That is also a very common theme that you'll see played out in these evangelical circles as sort of further justification or as a way of further bolstering their claim that this is this is God's hand on Trump. Trump is a leader who's maybe not one of us, but he understands us. And God sent him at this time to save us from, to save us. When they say us, they mean, you know, their white Christian view of America to save us from these other forces, whether it's, you know, secularism, feminism, socialism. Um, Trump is saving us from all of that. Is there a sense when you say evangelicals feel that he's on their side, is there a sense that the evangelical community is beleaguered or under threat? Yes. I mean, that is precisely why they see him as this savior figure. Because to them... You know, Roe versus Wade, uh, Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage, all of these things are taken by evangelicals as being a threat to Christianity and therefore, in their view, to their religious freedom. How much has Trump actively cultivated people aligning him with, with Cyrus? That's a good question. He certainly hasn't done anything to tamp it down, and none of his surrogates have done anything to tamp down that talk. I think that there have probably been situations where it has been said in his presence, but I also haven't seen him like pound his chest and say he's like King Cyrus, although I think, you know, anything's possible. As you know, there have been a number of people who have touted the comparison to Cyrus and they can come from all sorts of different traditions. So David Koresh was one, and of course the Shah was another. You know, mm-hmm. in all those cases, it was a person, you know, choosing to contextualize their mission in the history of a of a great figure. This feels different. Yes, I, it did not come originally from Trump, and I think it's important to understand that it comes from this subculture of evangelicalism where it's extremely commonplace for a self-anointed prophet to say that he or she has, you know, prophesied that some event is going to come to pass, such as Trump will win the presidency, for example. And for this demographic, somebody making that kind of comparison about a public figure isn't so unusual. 
you know, there's a lot of talk about a particular moment in history being someone's Esther moment. Again, you know, we're back in Persia, (laughs) but, you know, the Esther moment being, you know, it's your moment to save your people from a genocide um, or it's your moment to save America from liberalism. But I think that the Cyrus comparison has a very different feel to it. The Esther comparison is about each individual being able to play a role. Could it be that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? In other words, an Esther moment. And God has ordained that at some moment in life, you're essential. You know, that you can have your Esther moment if you get involved in politics and save America from these evils. Whereas the Cyrus comparison for Trump is very much about this, um, you know, pr- pretty much bowing down to this, um, this great leader. Menachem and Sarah give us two great examples of how stories from the ancient world are used in contemporary politics. Both accounts of how Cyrus was used make me wonder more broadly about the power of stories from the ancient world. The story of Cyrus is uncovering an ultimate truth about leadership and about destiny. There's something really kind of sweeping in what Cyrus does that makes him such a compelling model for generations afterwards. So in this case of the Shah, I can get that because in part, he's got great stage props. It makes for great theater, right? He can go to ruins and speak through the millennia to that leader who lived there. It's like something out of an opera. With Mm -hmm. the Trump case, I don't get it so much. Right. Yeah. So the Shah has has the land. He's got Cyrus's tomb. Trump and his evangelical followers, they've got the Bible. You know, Cyrus is in some of the most beautiful passages in the book of Isaiah. He figures in a number of other important books as well. Um, He is a major figure. I think for me, one of the things that it shows me is that we have a book, in this case, the Bible, or we have an edict, you know, in this case, the Cyrus Cylinder, and they're both open to interpretation, and people can appropriate them in very highly creative ways. Well, there's something powerful about being able to talk directly to the past. Right? The Shah did it. He was speaking speaking to Cyrus, you know, leader to leader through thousands of years. And in the case of evangelical communities, they have made Trump into a biblical figure. They have made Trump into a character who now has thousands of years of history behind him. And that's a powerful thing to do. Right. And there's also something very affirming about looking toward an uncertain future with all the confidence that you know how it works out because you know about this biblical past or this ancient king Cyrus. Yeah, even in the midst of crisis, you know that it's going to work out 
because it's worked out before. Sacred and Profane is produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our guests are Menachem Marhavi and Sarah Posner. Her book, Unholy, Why Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Trump, will be out this May. Our communications manager is Ashley Duffalo. Emily Gaddick is our senior producer. Kelly Jones is the lab's editor. Our readers were Megan Hartman and Peter Jacobs. Music on this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find out more about our work at religionlab.virginia.edu or by following us on Twitter at The Religion Lab. If you like the show, head over to iTunes or the platform of your choice to rate and review us. It really makes a difference for new shows like ours.